Have you ever found yourself in a remote location on a clear, dark night? One look to the sky above, and you likely experienced the same wonder of countless generations as they too observed the stars and planets. From ancient times, people have developed a knowledge of astronomy that aided navigation, timekeeping, and agricultural practices, and much more. Along the way, our view has expanded from observations with the naked eye to what powerful telescopes can detect. With this long history of looking to and learning from the night sky, what questions remain and how are we finding answers? Welcome to Connecting Classrooms, a podcast for educators and their students that brings experts at Shawnee State University directly to your classroom. I'm your host, Kimberly Inman, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at SSU. In this series, you will hear from my colleagues who love to share their passion for teaching and research. We seek to support teachers with supplemental resources for their lessons and to inspire their students to want to learn more. In this episode, the first year of science with the James Webb Space Telescope, we will meet Dr. Tim Hamilton, Professor of Physics and Director of the Clark Planetarium at SSU. From our campus in Portsmouth, Ohio, Tim works with the Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescopes to study what are called active galaxies, like quasars. These are galaxies whose central black holes are actively sucking in gas, heating it up, and making it glow so brightly it can outshine the whole rest of the galaxy. Most recently, Tim and his research students at SSU have been studying how microbes can survive space-like conditions by flying the microbes on high-altitude balloons into the stratosphere. Now, let's connect with Tim and learn about the first year of science with the James Webb Space Telescope. Telescopes have been placed high up on mountains, and for the last few decades, we've had several in space. The Hubble Space Telescope has been orbiting Earth for 33 years, and now the James Webb Space Telescope has been in space for a year and a half. So Tim, why do we put telescopes in space in the first place? Why don't we just keep them on the ground where they're easier to get to? So, the first telescopes we built certainly were down at ground level. Uh, you think about maybe the U.S. Naval Observatory or the oldest operating observatory in the United States, the uh, Cincinnati Observatory, and those are not up on mountains. Uh, but the trouble is that when you're down that low, you wind up with all that thick atmosphere above you. You certainly get clouds and all the weather that blocks your view of the sky, but you also have the shimmering of the atmosphere. The same thing that makes the stars twinkle when we look at them causes them to dance around through the telescope much, much more because we're magnifying all of that motion, all, all of that squiggly nature there. So we want to get above as much of the atmosphere as we can to reduce what we call the seeing. And that seeing is the uh, the shimmering, the twinkling, and even much more subtle effects that you can't see with the naked eye. So we put them up on tall mountains now. That gets you above, oh, let's say you're going up to uh, uh, the Hawaiian mountains, for example, or in Chile or in the Rocky Mountains, and you can get up 10, 15,000 feet above sea level. Now you're above a large fraction of the atmosphere. In many cases, you're above the clouds, but you're above a lot of that shimmering of the air. So the next logical step was put them in space. When we get them in space, we get rid of all of the atmospheric effects entirely. And we open up new kinds of astronomy that simply weren't possible before. For example, the atmosphere, not only does it uh, uh, distort our views, 
but it also winds up blocking some kinds of light entirely. Think about the light that we can't see with our own eyes. We can see from red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and red, orange, green, ah, red, or Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. There, I've got to remember my colors in order. And But beyond the violet is the ultraviolet. Down below the red is the infrared. And the atmosphere blocks most of the ultraviolet light and most of the infrared. On top of it, and very useful for us, it blocks absolutely all of the X-rays and the gamma rays from reaching the Earth, which was good because otherwise we'd be getting this dose of radiation just from the sun. And it blocks most of that ultraviolet light as well. I mean, think about how bad it is when you get a sunburn, but it would be so much worse if the atmosphere were not opaque to most of those UV rays. So, if we want to take a look at what's going on in space with ultraviolet light, with X-rays, with gamma rays, with uh, mid-range uh, mid infrared, and so on, then we have to go up into space in order to see that light at all. So space telescopes have a great advantage, but at the same time, there are disadvantages because they make it much more expensive. Uh, we can put a telescope on the ground, we just mount it whenever we want to fix it, we just go in there with a screwdriver or whatever. But in space, that's a much more expensive proposition. It costs millions of dollars, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars to put them in space, and then it costs you... Um, Every time the astronauts would go to repair the Hubble Space Telescope, that was half a billion dollars more, say. So ground-based telescopes still have their role, uh, and space-based telescopes have theirs. So we have this mix of both of them. Why launch the James Webb when we still have the Hubble? What can it do that the Hubble can't? The James Webb is an infrared telescope, while the Hubble Space Telescope is looking only with visible light, and, well, a little bit of the ultraviolet and a little bit of the infrared. But the James Webb goes from the deep red bands of the visible spectrum all the way down through the near-infrared and the mid-infrared, uh, wavelengths that simply cannot be seen by the Hubble and really, for the most part, can't be done from the Earth. So the James Webb is, a, is letting us look at the kinds of things that glow with this infrared light. That can be dust, it can be uh, uh, other kinds of mo uh, molecules that put out infrared light, uh, but also it allows us to see farther away. Because the universe is expanding, as galaxies move away from us with the expansion of space itself, they are being red-shifted. The Doppler shift of their light caused by relativity means that the faster away they move, the redder they get, and therefore, light that could have been emitted in, say, blue light, might be shifted all the way to the infrared by the time that we see it. The farther away a galaxy is, the faster away it's moving, and the more it's redshifted. Therefore, if we want to look at, say, starlight, uh, for a galaxy that's way, way far away, we need to look in the infrared. Furthermore, the James Webb is a much larger telescope than the Hubble is. The Hubble is about has a mirror, which is about three yards across, uh, and the James Webb's mirror is about 20, uh, actually uh, uh, 20 feet across there. And so we're able to uh, gather much more light with the James Webb, which means it can see things which are much fainter, um, we get a brighter image out of it, and we also get a sharper view out of it than we do with the Hubble. So, what has the James Webb found in its first year? We've already got a long list of discoveries under its belt. 
I've put together, now this is, I know, podcasts are just audio, uh, but because astronomy is such a visual science, I've put together a little slideshow PDF file uh, that the listeners can follow along with when you want to take a look at the pictures. And I'll refer to the page numbers on each one of these as we go. Page one is simply my title slide there, but let's flip over to page two. Now, here we're taking a look at a Hubble Space Telescope photograph of a supernova that went off in 1987. Now, the Hubble wasn't launched until 1990, and then we had a bad problem with the mirror that distorted the images. That wasn't fixed until the end of 1993. But in 1994, the Hubble turned its gaze over to the supernova. What was left after this star exploded? This is the closest exploding star, supernova explosion, that had been seen for hundreds of years. And when the Hubble looked at it, they saw this remarkable uh, interlocking ring picture there. And what you're seeing at the very center is the remnant of the explosion itself, that, that bright uh, kind of orangish-reddish glow in the middle, surrounded by a brighter ring, and then that is surrounded by two fainter interlocking rings. Now, let's head on, and I'll explain what those are in a moment. Let's head on to slide number three. In page three here, you see the James Webb view from 2023. So here we are, we're separated by, what, almost 30 years uh, of this, and we're looking at the same scene. I've got them exactly lined up here, but now we're looking with, one, with infrared light, two, we're able to see much fainter details, you can tell that easily, but also three, we're looking 30 years later. Now, you might think that the night sky doesn't really change from one year to the next, aside from the wandering of the planets and the occasional eclipse. But out in, out in deep space, in places like this, we really are able to look at changes over time. Where in this case, the exploding shockwave from that supernova explosion, we've been able to watch it as it has torn through the image here. Now, the center spot, and you might want to switch back and forth between picture two and picture three. That center spot is the debris from the exploding star. It's a, a dust cloud and glowing gas and all of that. That bright ring surrounding it, and you can see in picture three, you notice that it's got little rings of bright dots in that now that weren't there in 1994. That is a ring of gas that was thrown out by the star just before it died about 10 or a few tens of thousands of years ago. So that ring is out there, was already there before the supernova went off. And then the two outer locking, uh, outer interlocking rings are um, spots that are lit up in kind of an hourglass formation above and below the axis of this, uh, of this formation here. Uh, so we're going to take a look at that inner ring. As the shock wave expanded outward through space, it's invisible until it hits something. And when it slammed into the gas of that inner ring there, it started lighting it up like lights on a Christmas tree. And we, we watched across the late 1990s and early 2000s as one and another and more and more of these spots started glowing as the gas and dust in them was torn apart by the expanding shock wave. Now, 30 years later, we're able to see all of that in much more detail, and with the infrared, we can see uh, parts of the gas that are glowing much more faintly as well, that are uh, not, not as hot, but are, but are cooler and are glowing with the infrared light. Now, the really interesting thing about this, though, is what this is telling us about the structure 
of the supernova. Take a look at slide four. In this case here, we've got a, a, a diagram uh, superimposed on top of it. And look at that inner part there that it labels the keyhole, because it's got a little keyhole shape in the middle. That bluish uh, turquoise colored spot, that's the debris field, and you can see that it's expanded from how it was back in uh, 1994. And so as this expansion of the gas is going on, we should be getting a look at whatever is left over after a supernova. Now you can get two things. You can either get a neutron star, which is the densest possible kind of star, where all of the material has been compressed into a ball of neutrons, or you can get a black hole. Well, I reckon a black hole is even denser than a neutron star, but it's a special kind of thing then. And we don't know which of these it is. Most astronomers think it's probably going to be a neutron star, but we don't know for sure until we can get a look at it. And the problem is here that that dust debris surrounding the remnant is blocking our view. Now, with the infrared light, the James Webb can see deeper through the dust than the Hubble can, but in this case, there's still too much of it to make out. Take a look at picture five. We've got a nice schematic put out by the people at the Space Telescope Science Institute, which runs both the Hubble and the James Webb, showing you what we believe is going on with each of these there. Uh, this is really labeling the parts that I'd already shown you here. And uh, hopefully over the next several years, maybe it'll take decades, we'll be able to get deeper and deeper views into that inner um, spot there and see what kind of neutron star or black hole we've got. Let's take a look over at picture six. Now, this is a weird object. It's called a Herbig Harrow object, named after the two astronomers who had discovered these back decades ago. Back early on, Herbig and Harrow had seen these bright spots in certain places in the Milky Way, pairs of spots in the infrared. Remember, think of infrared light as heat rays, basically. So they knew that these were hot spots, and they were arranged kind of like um, dumbbells. But the, what was in between them? And it turned out that there are stars in between them. What we're looking at in this case, now with the Hubble Space Telescope and finally with the James Webb Space Telescope, is we can see that these are high-speed jets of gas, ionized gas called plasma, superheated, electrically charged gas. And young stars, as they're forming, cast off this gas at high speeds through jets from their north and their south poles. As these jets of gas slam into the surrounding gas and dust uh, that, that formed the star to begin with, it sheds that gas out kind of like a cocoon, like a butterfly emerging from the cocoon. As it plows through that surrounding gas and dust, the shock wave caused by the high-speed motion of the jet uh, heats up very hot and causes these hot spots called the herbig harrow objects. This one is the 211th herbig Harrow object that was discovered, and um, with the James Webb, we're able to see in great detail looking at the structure of those jets. Uh, in particular, we can look in this one, and we can see how the, uh, the two jets coming out the bottom left and the upper right they kind of corkscrew around in a while, uh, from, from time to time, and they, get, they get, make these parallel wiggle motions with a mirror symmetry on either side of that first generation of star called a protostar. Uh, this is giving us a clue that once down at the core, we can't see the star because you see that brown smudge in the middle? That's the dust that blocks our view of it, even in the infrared right here. 
but it looks like it may be a binary star. Now, you see, most stars are not like the sun that are by themselves. Most stars are members of a pair. We call it binary stars. Some, in fact, are parts of triple star systems, and then there are even others that are two pairs, so two binaries orbiting each other, so a quadruple star system. So, if it's a binary star, then, you've got one star orbiting the other and vice versa. And as they go around each other, those jets are going to wobble around and make a corkscrew pattern, which we can see in the inner regions close to the middle here. Uh, earlier observations of this Herbig Harrow 211 uh, from the ground had shown the shock waves coming out there, the upper left and the lower, sorry, the upper right and the lower left. Um, but now we can actually see that the flow rate coming out with the James Webb, we can see it's actually slower than we expected uh, from other kinds of protostars with similar kinds of outflows. So this is actually a little bit unusual then. So we can measure the speeds of these outflows by taking pictures periodically, time after time, year after year then, and you can watch it and play a movie of that stuff moving out. Let's move on to picture seven. Now, this again, going back to a Hubble image taken oh, almost 30 years ago, and I always like to put these together because it shows you the improvement that we've got with the James Webb over the Hubble and uh, how much more sensitive the light is, the, the picture is, with the James Webb, with its much larger mirror and its much more sensitive cameras, much more modern cameras now. So here's a galaxy called the Cartwheel Galaxy. That's the, well, the one that looks like a, a wagon wheel at the center right. You see that it's got that orange to yellow looking center, the hub, and then it has blue spokes going out to a bright blue ring around it. What you're looking at is different colors of stars. The yellow to orange colors are what we might call older, more evolved stars that are cooler in temperature, while the bright blue comes from very hot stars. You think about uh, the blue flame in a furnace, uh, whereas you've got kind of the red coals of just a very dull bit of coals left over after a campfire. So that's the difference we're looking at, it's temperature. So we've got cool temperatures at the center of the cartwheel galaxy, and then that outer ring is bright and blue, so much hotter. What's going on here is that we're looking at new star formation. New stars include a mix of very hot stars and very cool stars. That means uh, bright blue ones for the hot stars, cool dim red ones, or yellowish orange here, for the cool stars. Now, it's got a lot more of those cool stars there, um, because those are made out of very small bits of mass. They never really get all that hot, and they don't live, uh, they don't burn their, their fuel very quickly. They live for long, long times. On the other hand, the very massive stars, and only a few of them that are made, are extremely hot, and they burn through that fuel very, very quickly. So they burn out in just a few million years, whereas those fainter, dimmer, cool red stars, those can live for tens or hundreds of billions of years, maybe even a trillion years in some cases. So, the bright blue phase only occurs while stars are being formed, because very quickly those bright blue stars burn out, and they turn into cool red stars as well. And then you're just left with the cool red ones, red and dead as we say. Now, 
In the case of the Cartwheel Galaxy, what happened is that a another galaxy slammed through the middle of the Cartwheel, which was originally just sort of a normal pinwheel spiral galaxy like our Milky Way, and slammed through it and kept on going. And then that slamming through created a shock wave that rippled outward through the galaxy. And as that shock wave expanded through the dust and gas of that cartwheel galaxy, it compressed the gas very quickly, forming a lot of new stars at rapid speed, much faster than they would have formed if they were just left for the slow drift of gas collapsing under the, its own weight of, ga of gravity uh, and its own slow time. This is called a starburst event, and that's a starburst galaxy because of that burst of star formation. Now, if we turn over to picture eight, what we're looking at here is a combination of near-infrared light, so it's almost like the visible, as well as the mid-infrared light with two different cameras on the James Webb, the near-infrared camera, or near-cam, and the mid-infrared imager called... Uh, uh, mid-infrared imager MIRI, M-I-R-I. Now, in the mid part of the infrared, much longer, redder wavelengths than the visible light that we see, we get to look at the heat emitted by warm objects, in this case, dust. And there really is space dust, literally, out there in space. And you can see the spokes going out from the central hub out to the outer ring, that traces in the red here, that traces the dust, which we could not see in the Hubble image. We saw little hints of those spoke lines, but that was from new star formation going out there. Here we see the new star formation, kind of the bluish colors, and then the dust in the red. Uh, now, where is the galaxy that slammed through the cartwheel. We used to think it was one of those two on the left. By the way, notice the differences we see on those two, both in the Hubble image and on the, uh, the, the web image. We see that the upper left galaxy and the Hubble image is very bright and blue, new star formation going on, while the lower left is, um, we call it redder in astronomy, but it will look yellow to orange uh, to the eye. And that's meaning that it doesn't have all that star formation going on. Now when we look with the James Webb, we see that that upper left galaxy has got all this dust going through it, just like the cartwheel does. So you see, dust is actually associated with star formation. Stars produce the dust. They, um, they fuse hydrogen into heavier elements going down the periodic table, down in their cores with nuclear fusion. And then those heavier elements, as they swirl around in the star, and they're ejected out into space uh, by the strong winds off of the star as it evolves and, and goes through its later stages. And then these materials stick together out there in space and form grains of dust, which are combinations of silicates, kind of like uh, what you find in sand on the earth, like quartz and so on, as well as hydrocarbons. Carbon and hydrogen, other, uh, other kinds of those elements, stick together, and in some combination of this forms that space dust. Now, that dust is actually important for life, because without the dust, it's very hard to form planets. You can't form solid planets without solid material. Furthermore, that carbon that's in the dust is also some of the carbon that we get into, into the bodies. We need carbon for living things, at least as far as life as we know it. So here you can actually see that process of the dust formation going on right here. Let's go on to 
picture 9. And here's something entirely different. Here we're looking at Saturn's moon Enceladus, which is a large moon orbiting around Saturn. And in the little inset picture, you see a photograph from the Cassini spacecraft, which orbits around Saturn and has made several close passes to Enceladus. If you take a look at the bottom, you see those that spray coming out that is actually what we call a cryovolcano. Cryo from the Greek word for ice. So what this is, this is a cryovolcano. It's so cold out there that ice is a rock. Ice is just treated by the planetary astronomers as a, a plain old rock, a mineral like quartz and feldspar and so on like that, uh, like we would have on the Earth. But it's so cold out there that it never gets liquid. You don't find liquid water out there unless... Something else heats it up. Sunlight, way too faint, way too cool in order to melt the ice out that far out in the solar system. So, if ice is like a rock, then when it's heated up and melts, that's lava. So we have this molten lava in somewhere down inside Enceladus, which is like the magma inside the Earth, and when it sprays up through the crust, you get a cryovolcano, which is like a regular volcano on the Earth, and it's spewing hot, molten water. You might also think of it like a geyser, which would also be a pretty good description. Now, what we see here in that wider blue uh, kind of skewed rectangle there is we're looking at... Um, a photograph, a combination photograph and spectrum. Now, this is a new, relatively new kind of an instrument, which is on the James Webb. We've had them for about 20, 30 years for practical purposes now, and they're, they're getting better. And it's called an integral field spectrograph, or simply an integral field unit. And the idea is, you take a picture, and every pixel of that picture, you've got a spectrum. You shine the light from that pixel through a prism, or more commonly what we call a diffraction grating, but it does the same thing, and that spreads the light out into its colors. As it does so, we get the chemical signature of whatever elements and molecules are in there. So, this is a great, fantastic tool. Now, it, it doesn't look like much on the picture, but you can see that that bright pixel in the middle of that blue image, that whole pixel there is what contains the entire moon of Enceladus. That's that, that little rectangle showing you it goes down to that, that pixel. And what we can see with this uh, web image is that that water is spraying out far into space. And if we take a look at the next picture, we can see how this is a schematic. It's got the photograph at the lower left, but the rest is a schematic. We can see Saturn and its rings there, and then we see that Enceladus is making a ring of water vapor surrounding it, or little frozen water droplets, so it's kind of like ice crystals, orbiting around Saturn, all spewing out of its cryovolcanoes. Now, by shining that light of each of those pixels through the spectrograph then, we can see the chemical signature of water showing up with bright spikes, or they show up as spikes on that graph there. And so this is a fantastic tool. We can do both imaging, taking pictures, and the spectroscopy, which gets us the chemistry and the physics at the same time. Let's go on to picture 11. Now, this is actually what I'm very excited about because this picture was taken by a team that I'm on. It's called SEERS, C-E-E-R-S, which stands, which stands for Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science. Uh, by the way, when we came to naming the team, we had 
Oh, we had like one or two emails going around about the proposal for using the James Webb, and then we had 28 emails in one or two days about what the acronym should stand for. Yeah, that shows you what we astronomers get excited about, is coming up with cutesy acronyms. Now, this is a big team. We've got like a hundred some odd people in it, and we'd all do all different kinds of science, but we're using the James Webb in large part to take pictures of the very first galaxies that were formed. That's one of our big goals. And so uh, our, the head of our team, Steve Finkelstein at uh, the University of Texas, he was looking at the pictures when they came right off the telescope. And in this wide picture here, he saw this is that little inset box there, this faint little red smudge. And that, that red dot is a galaxy. Now, judging from the color, this turns out to be one of the most distant galaxies ever found. And at the time, it may have been the most distant one ever found. Now, because the universe is expanding, as I explained before, the farther away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. Now, because of relativity, a galaxy moving away from us at high speed will have its color look redder than it really is. That's called redshift. The faster it moves, the more the color is redshifted. Now, for galaxies that are fairly close by, they're not really moving away all that quickly, and the redshift is pretty small. For those, the galaxy looks normal to our eyes, and you can really only tell the color shift by using that instrument called a spectrograph, kind of like what we used in that picture of Enceladus there. Now, that, with a spectrograph, we would then look for the distinctive colors emitted by elements like hydrogen, say, and we'd be able to see if that color has shifted just a bit. But when the galaxy is really, really far away, the redshift is so big that it takes on a very distinctively red color, visible to the naked eye, or at least when you're looking at the computer screen. Now, we didn't have a, red, a spectrograph to check the redshift on this exactly from this photograph, so Steve had to judge it, judge it based on how well its color matched what we would expect for a galaxy that far away. That's not as accurate, but it will do for a first look. And what he found was that this galaxy appears to be 13,400,000,000 light-years away from us. That means we're looking at it the way it used to look 13,400,000,000 years ago. Remember, a light year is the distance that light travels in one year. So if something is 10 light years away from us, we see it the way it looked 10 years ago. If it's 13 billion light years away, we see it the way it looked 13 billion years ago. Now, so we're literally looking backwards that far in time. Now, it's not a figure of speech. We are literally looking backwards in time when we look out that far in space. Well, the universe itself is only 13,700,000,000 years old, so we're looking at this galaxy when the universe was only about 300,000,000 years old, give or take a bit. That means that the galaxies were forming very early on after the Big Bang and the creation of the universe to begin with. So when Steve found this galaxy, it turned out it was his daughter Maisie's birthday, and she asked him if he would name something for her. And so we've named this Maisie's Galaxy, and the name seems to be sticking. We published, well, we, I'm on the team, but I wasn't on this paper. We published a paper very quickly after this announcing the most distant galaxy known. And then a day later, somebody else published another paper discovering another galaxy that was even farther out. And a day or two after that, there was another paper announcing even a farther galaxy. So it's really tough competition when you're looking back to the beginning of the universe. Let's go on to uh, 12, and here we get on to our last subject for this podcast. This is 
Uh, for 12 here, this is a, a Hubble photograph. And then in 13, I'll show you the web view. This is a picture of a cluster of galaxies. And here we see the Hubble view of it. And if you click over onto the next page, page 13, you'll see the web view. And notice how much brighter everything is. This shows you again how much more sensitive webs uh, uh, cameras are and how much more light we gather with that gigantic 20-foot wide mirror. This is the, what we call the first deep field image the web took of a galaxy cluster, uh, one called SMAX 723. Now, SMAX is an acronym. It's called the Southern Massive Cluster Survey, and it's looking at clusters of galaxies all around the southern half of the sky. Now, while some galaxies sit alone all by themselves, others are found in groups, like our Milky Way, which is in a group with the Andromeda galaxy nearby and several small, what we call dwarf galaxies, orbiting around the pair of them. Still other galaxies form large clusters, which could have even hundreds of large galaxies and many more dwarf galaxies. The idea of a deep field is that the telescope takes a long exposure of one field of view, one patch of the sky, to look for very faint and distant galaxies. In this case, astronomers had the web stare at this one field of view for over 12 hours. We can compare that to the fraction of a second you might use to take a photograph of a sunny scene with your phone. As a result, the web can see objects that are about 150. 155 billion times fainter than the faintest stars you can see with a naked eye. When we look at these clusters of galaxies, we see something remarkable. The gravitational pull of the galaxies warps the fabric of space-time around them, which bends the path of light rays coming from even more distant galaxies, ones that are behind the cluster. And the cluster then acts kind of like a wavy, warped lens. That distorts the view of those more distant galaxies behind it, turning them into long, thin arcs and making it look like you're watching them through a round fishbowl. In many cases, the images of these background galaxies are split into many copies so that we see several distorted versions of each one. This effect is called a gravitational lens, and it really does act like a lens. It magnifies and it brightens the things behind them you can see the lensed galaxies, the ones in the distant background. When you look at this cluster, if you look for the long, thin arcs and ones which are kind of pulled out like stretching taffy or distorted into weird shapes, and they'll tend to make arcs that sort of ring around the center of the, of the, of the cluster. And so you're going to see these arcs making kind of circles going around the picture here. Now, because the amount of distortion we see depends on the mass of the galaxy cluster that acts as the lens, we can use the lensing effect to weigh these clusters and find their mass. We now know that most of the mass of a galaxy is not in the stars, or the gas clouds, or the space dust, all those things we can see directly with a telescope. Instead, the vast majority of that mass is something called dark matter. In a cluster, this dark matter makes up over 80% of the total mass, while stars are only around 5%, and almost all the rest of it is gas. So what we can do, we can calculate the total mass with gravitational lensing. Then we can subtract away the mass we see in stars and gas, and then what we're left with is the dark matter. 
We don't really know what dark matter is, though. There have been theories that it could be small black holes or even rogue planets flying out between the stars, but there haven't been enough of those found to account for it. The best theory, most of us believe, is that it's made up of some kind of exotic subatomic particles, popularly called WIMPs, W-I-M-P. That's weakly interacting massive particles. Again, acronyms. Everything in astronomy is an acronym, it seems. But which kinds of particles are those? Experiments to identify them haven't found any yet. And there are a lot of these particle types that have been predicted by the particle theorists, though, so we may just have to keep trying them one after another and see when we finally find something. So that's what I've got to show you. And I will say that... Uh, because the pictures coming out of these are just so impressive in their own right, I've put together a, an activity where you can go on to our website and you can download some of these pictures from the Hubble, from the James Webb, and you can experiment with making full-color images out of them. Because all the pictures taken by a telescope, by a professional telescope, are black and white. And in order to make a color image, what we do is we take a red filter, a green filter, and a blue filter. We take a black and white picture with each one of those colored filters, and then we use some special software to put them together to make the color, the full color. Why do we do this? The reason is, is that we don't usually just do red, green, and blue. In fact, a lot of the colors you see here aren't even visible to the eye. Infrared, ultraviolet in some cases, and so on. So we, this allows us to use any combination of wavelengths of light, no matter what it is. And then we can combine them to get that full color image. And then comparing where do things look redder, bluer, and so on, tells us about the physics of what's going on. You've been listening to Connecting Classrooms, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Shawnee State University. For show notes and extended classroom activities related to this episode, please visit www.shawnee.edu slash connecting. For this episode, audio engineering was provided by T.R. Beery.